Good morning, everybody. Um, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're continuing in our series on looking at the armor of God. So Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to read starting at verse 10 and going through to where it talks about the breastplate of righteousness, which is the piece of equipment that we're going to look at today. So if you turn in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through uh, actually 14. Beloved, listen to God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, and with the breastplate of righteousness in place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was six, maybe seven years old. My parents had dropped me off for my first ever soccer practice somewhere in Burnaby, I think along Edmund Street. It was in the evening, it was dark, it was cold, it was rainy. After the practice, the other players' parents came and picked them up, and the coaches left. In that days, the coaches wouldn't always stick around, and I was left by myself in the field, in the cold and the rain, and the thought occurred to me, what if my parents forgot me? What if I am forgotten? And as this idea gripped me, I became positively terrified to be forgotten by my parents. A few years later, my parents decided it would be a good idea, this was in 1987, I was 11 years old, to send me to Orangeville, Ontario for a cadet camporee. I did not want to go. I was incredibly susceptible in those days to homesickness. I think it was no sooner than the plane had landed in Ontario in this faraway land after a five-hour flight, and the thought occurred to me, what if, while I am gone, my parents leave, my siblings leave, and the house will be empty when I get back. What if I am abandoned? And even though I never had any reason in the world to believe that my parents would abandon me or forget me, nonetheless, this thought gripped me, and I thought, I am going to be abandoned. And again, I was positively terrified. And I thought, there could be nothing worse than this feeling, this idea of being abandoned. I have subsequently learned that there is an even worse idea, because to be forgotten is bad, to be abandoned by one's parent is worse, but then it is possible that one could be the object of a parent's ill will, that they could harm their own child, or they could passively allow their child to suffer. Even when they had the power to do something, I thought, surely this is as bad as it could possibly get, and it's true. It's not for no reason, friends, that the greatest, the single greatest obstacle to faith in the God of the Bible 
and to maintaining one's faith in the Bible is, as philosophers have coined it, the classic problem of evil and suffering. Christian theism posits two claims, that God is all-powerful and that God is all-good. This is incredibly difficult to reconcile with the problem of evil and suffering in the world to our exposure to evil and suffering and our experience of evil and suffering. As the argument goes, because if God is all-powerful, then God could do something about evil and suffering in this world, and if God was all-good, He would. And yet, (laughs) there is evil and suffering in the world. Therefore, we conclude that either God is not all-powerful or God is not all-good. But a God who is not all-powerful, of course, wouldn't be a God at all but a weakling. And therefore, terrifyingly, many have concluded that God must not be all-good. They will not believe in the God of the Bible. And others in the Christian church, once they have suffered certain evils in their own life or witnessed them in the world, can no longer say that they believe in the God of the Bible because they doubt the goodness of God. They cannot trust a God who passively and or actively allows the kind of evil and suffering that we see in the world to continue to go on in the world. Their faith is ruined. Their faith specifically in the goodness of of God. And then all manner of ruin can follow. Because if God is not good, then why should I be good? If God is not good in watching out for me, then that means that I need to watch out for myself by any means possible. Once the seed of doubt has been planted in our heart that God is not good, It paves the pathway for us and for society in the world toward death, destruction, and moral decay. It is for this reason (laughs) that when Scripture begins to talk about the powers and principalities of evil in this world and begins to expose the tactics of the supreme evil one known as the serpent or the devil— that it demonstrates to us that in addition to trying to dislodge us from the truth of God, one of the supreme tactics of the evil one is to try to get us to doubt the goodness of God. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes to Adam and Eve, and actually he first comes to Eve in the garden, and what's the first thing out of his mouth? Do you remember? Eve? Did God really say thereby trying to dislodge her from the truth of God, as we spoke about last week. But then the content of the question, did God really say, Eve, that you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? Not any, Eve? God had told them that they must not eat of one tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for their own good they must not eat of it. But now the devil insinuates that God is a cheapskate. He insinuates that God is withholding good things from his good children. He takes an arrow and shoots it into the belief that God is fundamentally good and looking out for the goodness of his creatures. 
And Eve, with this doubt planted deep in her heart, then believes, as we see as the story goes on, that she must take responsibility for reaching out for her own good to secure her own good in the world. And it leads, then, to death, destruction, and moral decay. Oh, how ruinous it is when that doubt has taken root in our heart and we begin to act on it. Which is why it is one of the devil's tactics. And let me just say here before moving on, you know, if it was easy for the devil to do this in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall of human beings, prior to the onset of death, decay, and destruction, how much easier is it now to insinuate this doubt into our hearts, no? And I just imagine that the devil has been doing this throughout history. And not with the hiss, please, of a serpent, but rather taking on the role of a loving, compassionate pastor, an empathic friend, a therapeutic therapist. Come, come, Joseph, you poor soul, you. What kind of God would allow a person to be sold, to be thrown into a pit, and then sold by his own brothers? And then... When you attempted to do the right thing in Potiphar's house by resisting Potiphar's wife, you're going to get punished for it by once again being thrown into prison. What kind of God, Joseph, and what kind of God, Israel, would allow a people, his own people, his own children, to languish in slavery for 400 years only when he moves to redeem them, to thrust them out into a wilderness where they're going to be hungry every day, thirsty every day, and worried whether their children or the elderly are going to fall down in the sand and die because of the heat. What kind of God? You poor soul, Israel. And what kind of God, Hannah? What kind of God would plant the desire as fervently as, as he has in your own heart to have a child, to become a mother, and you would be the best mother this world has ever seen, but then he would withhold you from having that desire for years and years on end. What kind of God would sit back when he has all the power in the world and allow you to suffer infertility in that way, just like he did, remember, with Mother Sarah? And what kind of God, Job, would touch your family and touch your skin and touch your flesh because he's having some kind of argument with the accuser, the Satan, up above in the unseen realms that doesn't impact you in any way. And then when you finally do get an answer, he's not compassionate at all, but he blasts you for two chapters. What kind of God, you poor thing. If it was easy for the devil to trip up Adam and Eve, how much easier now on this side of the gates of paradise, is it easy for the devil to get us to doubt the goodness of God and to get us to act on the doubt about the goodness of God? Come, come, Christian, he will say to us today, but what kind of God would allow you to lose your own child? What kind of God would take your spouse from you so soon? What kind of God would allow you to go through a divorce? What kind of God would allow you to languish in loneliness in your basement? What kind of God would collapse you economically? And to our world right now, right? What kind of God would allow this ruddy pandemic to go on so that there is an incredible uptake, uptick, an increase in suicidal ideation in the pandemic of loneliness? in mental illness, in spousal breakdown, in child abuse, in mental illness, 
What kind of God would just sit back and allow this to happen when he has all the power to change it? It's not hard. And we feel it. And this is one of the reasons that Paul will say that we need to suit up with the armor of God, and in particular this morning, that we need to strap on, in addition to the belt of truth, we need to strap on the breastplate of righteousness. And we need to strap on the breastplate of righteousness, friends, in light of the problem of evil and suffering because it will protect us. It will protect us not, please, from our doubts. No, because it is normal to have doubts. Certainly it is, and we all will have doubts at some points in our lives, or most of us will, because hard things happen. It won't protect us from having doubts, but it will protect us from refusing to doubt our doubts. (laughs) It will protect us from refusing to doubt our doubts. And nonetheless, in the face of the problem of evil and suffering, to hold on in faith to the claim, to the reality that God is good. And to hold on in faith to this claim and this reality with joy and hope. This is what the breastplate of righteousness will enable us to do in the first instance, besides enabling us to do some other things. It will protect us from refusing to doubt our doubts. Why? Because, and I have to be brief here, Righteousness, according to the New Testament, is preeminently a quality of God. It's something that God is. God is righteous, and it's something that God does. God does righteousness. And in a very tight nutshell, when you boil down what the New Testament says and Scripture confirms all the way through about the righteousness of God, you get this. Righteousness, according to Scripture, is God's self-demonstration on the canvas of history, that he is incontestably, unarguably good. And how can we know this? Well, according to the New Testament, we can know this because, as 1 Corinthians 30 puts it pointedly, Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God, which is to say, Jesus Christ is God's self-demonstration that God is, on the canvas of history, (laughs) incontestably, unarguably, and unimaginably good. And that we can trust this goodness even in the face of the ongoing problem of evil and suffering. We can trust it all the way to the bottom. We have sufficient warrant in the face of Jesus Christ, to trust that God is good. Here's one way of thinking about it. You want to know what God looks like? The New Testament says if you want to know what God has looked like, God really, really looks like, if you want to really know what God is like, then all you need to do is look to Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. One of the questions that we must ask ourselves as we go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is what if God became king in a localized geographical area and started to act in accord with his true nature? What would it look like if God became president? What would it look like if God became premier? 
According to the New Testament, you know what it would look like, friends? It would look like this. It would look like the lame walking, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, thugs denounced or denuded, the oppressed liberated and set free, corrupt religious leaders exposed, sinners forgiven, the truth spoken, love ringing out, the guilty relieved, the shame covered, the grieved given joy, demons cast out, devils scared out, and the devil himself cast down. It looks like prostitutes dancing, publicans repenting, and pornographers praying. It is, to coin a phrase, a whole new world, one that is manifestly good, or at least on the way to becoming so. You know what it looks like? It looks not like God opening his mouth and speaking philosophically and in high, sophisticated tones in order to give us an intellectual answer to the problem of evil and suffering. He does not seek to unriddle the riddle of the conundrum of suffering, but rather it looks like God being and becoming the answer to the problem of evil and suffering in the flesh of a human being in order to take the suffering out of circulation, in order to take evil and defeat it in its place. This is what it looks like when God becomes king. And of course, God takes out evil and suffering and is the answer to it in a supreme way on the cross of Christ. And allow me just to say two things about that, you know, because the problem of evil and suffering is not only a problem of pain because we hurt. It's a problem of responsibility because we know deep down in our hearts that someone has to be responsible for the hell that has become this world. Somebody has to be responsible for the hell that has become my life. I need to be able to point my finger and say, you, you are responsible for this, and you will pay. And what we are taught in Scripture is that on the cross, God, as a display of His righteousness, as a down payment for our trust in his goodness. He says, I am not responsible. The answer has something to do with an interplay between divine sovereignty and human freedom, which we will not unbug on the side of things. God says on the cross, I am not responsible for it, but I will take responsibility for it. I will take all the responsibility for it. I will take it on myself. I will pay for the hell that has become this world. Second problem with the problem of evil and suffering is not that it has stolen our past. It's that in so many ways, the things that have happened, right? They've stolen our present and they've stolen our future. We are the sort of creatures that bear scars. We're the sort of creatures that suffer phantom pains. And if the problem of evil and suffering is really going to be dealt with, then we need our scars either to be erased or that somehow, in some mysterious way, that our scars that we carry with us will become indirect occasions for joy. They will be completely overwhelmed. They won't matter anymore in some way or another. And what we find that is on the cross of Christ, when Jesus says it is finished, as an echo to the creation story, when God finishes the original creation, Jesus, as certified in his resurrection, is ushering in an entire new creation where Paul can say, our present sufferings do not compare with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those that love him. Saints, in light of the intellectual problem of evil and suffering, we are to strap on the breastplate of righteousness, which is the assurance that despite the ongoing problem of evil and suffering, in the face of Jesus Christ, we can know, we can trust, despite doubt sometimes, that God is oh so incredibly good to take responsibility for that which he is not responsible and to be ushering in a whole new world when so much of the evil and suffering has been perpetuated by human beings themselves. The question for the Christian is not generically, can God be trusted in the face of evil and suffering? The question for the Christian is, in the face of evil and suffering, can God be trusted in the face of Jesus Christ? He is, in an active way, the answer for the Christian to the problem of evil and suffering. And so, it's the first reason we need to strap on the breastplate of righteousness, but there's another reason, according to Scripture and according to Paul. And it's not only so that we will be protected from the problem of evil and suffering, the doubts that it would cause and the ruin that comes from that, but also so that we can push back on the very evil and the very suffering of this world itself. In other words, we strap on the breastplate of righteousness, friends, in order that we may join with God in being and becoming God's answer in active form to the problem of evil and suffering. I want you to think about this for a second. We, as I have been suggesting, often think in the church of the problem of evil and suffering as an intellectual puzzle, as a philosophical problem. From the beginning to the end of Scripture, we are not given a philosophical answer to the problem of evil and suffering. What we see again and again and again is God himself entering into the pages of human history in order to do something actively about that evil and suffering and doing so climactically in the cross of Christ as we have just said. And beloved, we are being invited to, not so much to provide the world with intellectual answers to the problem of evil and suffering, but as we take on the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself, being an answer to the problem of evil and suffering. You see, because the other thing that righteousness is in the New Testament, it's not only something that God is and God does, but it's something that we are to put on. We are to put on God's own character of goodness, his own character of faithfulness, of love, of truth, of justice, and live that character out in the world so that suffering will be relieved, so that evil will be vanquished right on the spot in the particularities of our lives. Sunday school. In Sunday school, we learned that the answer to every question is God. God is the answer. (laughs) And when it came to the problem of evil and suffering, Sunday school taught us that Jesus is the answer. And of course, Jesus is the answer. But what we must reconcile with in the church is that Jesus is always the answer through somebody. 
now that Jesus is seated in heaven, Jesus always seeks to be an answer through somebody, through you, through me, through us as a church. Somebody was once walking with Mother Teresa on the streets of Calcutta, and they saw people in the gutters covered in their own filth. He saw cripples laying in the street being walked by by masses of people. Saw emaciated people laying in the street and with horror turned to Mother Teresa and said, Mother Teresa, where is God? And Mother Teresa gently, calmly, and with love looked back at this person and said, Where is God? That is not the right question. The question is not where is God. The question is where are you? as the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. Our late black African-American Christian brother Tom Skinner once put it this way, it has always been the will of God to saturate the common clay of man's humanity and then send that man in open display in a hostile world as a living testimony that it is possible for the invisible God to make himself visible in a man and to make things better through God in man, as he did supremely in Christ. This is our calling in the world, sisters and brothers in Christ, to strap on God's own righteousness, supremely displayed in Christ, God's own character, so that we can be and become the answer with hands and feet to the problem of evil and suffering in this world. We are to be warriors for Christ and take the battle against suffering and take the battle against the forces of evil. To be a Christian is not to become a wimp. It's to become a warrior for Christ in this fashion. This is the way it has always worked in the church. It was righteous people armed with the goodness of God who many years ago now went out to the garbage dumps in antiquity in Rome to rescue and adopt aborted babies into their families because they believed every human being has dignity. It was righteous people armed with the goodness of God who said that women were every bit as human as men and as valuable, and over time radically improved the lot of women. It was righteous people armed with the goodness of God who did the same for slaves. It was righteous people armed with the goodness of God who financed projects to overcome ignorance that led to the eradication of disease and relief from so many struggles of everyday life. It was righteous people armed with the goodness of God, strapped up with the breastplate of righteousness. And we too have this capacity today, people of God. It may be heroic, but it probably won't be. (laughs) Most of us will not be William Wilberforce's. Most of us will not be Mother Teresa's. But most of us can make a difference to the people whom God has placed around us, in the places where he has providentially placed us, even if it's in very small ways, we can be a force for the good. We can alleviate a little bit of the suffering and the rancor of our world. In fact, just as I was writing these words this past week, I got a text from somebody who alerted me to the fact that Trump had come down with COVID-19. And then they followed up this phrase with, and I hope he doesn't make it. 
And there's a lot of that sentiment out right now. And my response to that was, you know, many people may have issues with Trump, and many people do, but we should, as Christians, not wish his ill. If we think that he is so dastardly and so lost, then what we should be doing is praying for him to come to know Jesus rather than to die without Christ in his life. We need to be forces for good, and we can be in the power of the Spirit with the righteousness of Christ operating within us. What if each of us just took a mantra? Many of us will say, well, I can't do much in my life. By the way, this past week, I heard many, many stories of people in this church who are just during COVID-19 picking up the phone and saying, how are you? And trying to be present to people's lives to scare away the plague of loneliness that is hitting so many people and the plague of suicidal ideation and other things like that. But what if we would adopt a mantra? We say, well, I can't do much, but maybe I can make a difference to that one person today. I can be a difference to one. What if everybody in the church on a daily basis would say, dear Lord, allow me to just make a difference to one person today that I ordinarily don't make a difference to. I was thinking this so I was writing this sermon, and I looked over toward my neighbor's house. She's a widow. She lost her husband a year and a half ago. COVID hit. I know she's been suffering a lot. She has one child who's not there very often at all. And I noticed that her gutters were filled with pine needles. She's in her mid-70s now, toward late 70s. There's no way she's getting up on her roof. And I think she's financially strapped. And I thought, you know what? There's something I can do on Monday. I can ask her if I can mount her roof and go and get rid of the pine needles. I can do, it's a small thing. It's a tiny little thing. It's probably not going to make a difference. But it'll make a difference to her. There's a story about an old man, grandfather with his grandson walking along the beach, and the water had gone out too quickly. Perhaps you've heard this story, and there was starfish littering all over the beach, hundreds and hundreds of starfish, thousands of starfish. And the little boy in his idealism began grabbing starfish and chucking them in the water. And his grandfather tilted his head back and let out a chuckle, and he said, oh, my dear boy, my dear boy, there are too many of them. There are too many of them. You, you won't make a difference. And the grandson, out of the lips of children and infants, said, but grandfather, I made difference to just that one. Maybe we can make a difference to just one. Permit me to conclude with a story. I think that captures many of the threads that we've heard here today. I'm going to read it because there's details in the story that I don't want to miss, and many quotes from this person himself. It's a story, a true story, about a man named Kamal Salim. Kamal was born and raised in Lebanon in a strict, zealous Muslim home. He was raised believing Jews and Christians were his mortal enemies. As a child, Kalam would dress in long white shorts and pretend to be riding a horse, so then he would say, for Islam, and pretend to run onto the battlefield to take off the heads of Christians to bring glory to Allah. Kamal said he and his siblings practiced killing on the dogs and cats in the neighborhood. He believed that when he eventually did get to kill Christians and Jews, which he was aiming to do, and hopefully get martyred, that he'd be transported immediately in heaven and royally rewarded. 
Shortly after joining the Muslim Brotherhood at a very young age, he was seven, seven, and learning to use an AK-47 and make bombs, Kamal saw active duty and was made the leader of a group of very young soldiers. He was so good in battle and leading and killing infidels that he even got to meet Yasser Arafat one day and shake his hand. One of Kamal's favorite things was witnessing, he says, the beheadings of infidels, those who would refuse to convert to Islam. He also loved propaganda classes where they learned techniques of turning everything against their enemies, techniques like uh, shooting enemy soldiers from hospital windows so those enemy soldiers would be forced to shoot back and kill innocent civilians at the same time, and then they could capitalize it on the propaganda afterwards. Eventually, Kamal got the opportunity to go and fight what he called the great giant infidel, namely the USA, the United States of America. The technique for destroying America, however, because it was a military superpower, was not military jihad, that is military war, but as he says, it was cultural jihad, to poison America's own people against America itself by telling minority groups, for example, that the system is against them, but Islam is for you and they'd make lots of converts that way. Another technique was to especially target women, the um, household, uh, those that were over households, because if you could convert a woman to Islam, then you could eventually get the whole family. So Kalam was busy all of doing, doing all of these things, engaged in as many organizations as he could possibly get himself engaged in. But then one day, as he was driving his car, a big truck struck him head-on, and he was seriously injured and taken to hospital. And he was angry with Allah. Why, Allah, he said, would you let this happen when I am one of your soldiers? There was no answer. During his stay in hospital, he was taken care of by a team of doctors and nurses, and one of the doctors in particular befriended him. So when it came time for Kamal to be discharged, this doctor, knowing Kamal had no family in town, he was only in his early 20s now, invited him to stay at his own house for as long as it took for him to recuperate. While in this doctor's house, Kamal says that his wife and kids doted on him and played with him and touched him and joked with him and prayed for him. At seven years old, besides being in an abusive family himself, he was in this radical um, sect of Islam. He was a jihad warrior trained in violence. But in this household then, the juxtaposition, because he knows, saw no violence in anyone at all, and he said that they spoke to God like a father, like God was their daddy, in a way he had never seen before. And seeing all of this and feeling loved, Kamal fell on his knees one day and said, Allah, Allah, why would you do this to me? These people are stupid, I know that. They're the infidels who deserve death. I'll kill them for you. But you have to speak to me and show me that you're real before I act. And guess what happened? Nothing. Allah did not speak, even though Kamal waited for him to speak. And then Kamal writes these words, and I'm quoting here. While I waited, this family flashed before me and became like a living book in front of me. I started to see how they lived their lives. They had a relationship with their God and with one another as husband and wife. They were Americans and Christians, but they were not bad people as I had always believed. They took care of me, revived me, loved me unconditionally, and prayed for me. They were generous and tender to their children, and they lived by a different code called love that I did not know existed. I certainly didn't know how to love, 
We sought to love our enemies by causing them to vanish through terrorism. These people live by their Bible that say to love your enemy and take care of these people who are homeless or in need. I was both homeless without a family to care for me and greatly in need. They were reaching out to me. What's more, they paid my hospital debts. Their children just loved me and called me Uncle Kamal. These people even trusted me to babysit the children. They had no idea that their de deadly enemy was in their midst. I thought I could finish this whole family off in one moment. They, before me, are like sheep to the slaughter. This family's goodness created a crisis of faith for Kamal, and he was sure that Allah would kill him for his doubt. And so he wanted to end his life. He got in a room alone and took out one of his guns and was prepared to blow his head off. But then, says Kamal, a voice filled the room, soft, gentle, like a father's voice, and said, Kamal, Kamal, the Muslims believe in the God of Father Abraham. They all pray to him. Why don't you call on the God of Father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And so Kamal did. And he says that then, quote, the God of Abraham came to me. The God of heaven and earth came right there into the room. The room was filled with his tangible glory and power. In his presence was fullness of joy, power, healing, love, peace, assurance, and reverence. It was Jesus. And he just stood there. And I said, who are you, my Lord? He said, I am that I am. I said, what's that supposed to mean? He answered, I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end, and I'm everything in between. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Now, ka'um, rise up, Kamal. You are my warrior and not their warrior. As I rose up, my body was impacted from top to bottom. My head, my neck, my collarbone, my ribs, my knees, everything became perfect. He totally healed me in one moment. Only the God of the Bible did miracles. At that moment, I knew his name was Yahweh, and his name was Jesus, and I understand that God is one. I said to him, I will live and die for you, my Lord. But he said, do not die for me. I died that you may live. I said to him, I will go and grab them by the eyelashes and skin their teeth and make them Christians. His response was, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few be an ambassador of mine. I started jumping up and down and shouting, I am an ambassador! I am an ambassador of God! Only to realize later that there are millions of ambassadors. Are you an ambassador for God? Is the breastplate of righteousness so firmly in place in your life that you trust in the goodness of God and are doing what you can, maybe in very small ways, to spread that goodness around so that evil may be vanquished, so that some of the suffering may be alleviated. May God give us strength, and may he also receive all of the glory, both now and forevermore, and all God's people say, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.